Are you ready to take your mindset to an even higher level on and off the mat? Then you're ready for the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast, where jiu-jitsu practitioners open their minds to new ideas and concepts about personal development, entrepreneurship, jiu-jitsu, and life. Our mission is to inspire, impact, and or improve your life in some way to support you during your consistent pursuit of becoming the best version of yourself personally and professionally. It's time to go beyond the mat with the host of the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast, Gustavo Dantas. Welcome to episode 117. Today I interview Andrew Gardenier. Andrew is a second degree black belt under Jiva Santana. He's the co-owner of the Boa Jiu-Jitsu Academy in Surprise, Arizona. He will be sharing his journey with you. I apologize for my voice. I got a little cold going. It's not COVID. I got the test negative. That's good. But just congested. And, and before I play the interview, I'm going to share with you my thoughts about the Who's Number One event that happened in Austin on February 26th. Uh, that happened on Flow Grappling. So... I mainly watched the main event. The co-main event and the main event was Gordon Ryan and Roberto Jimenez. He was supposed to face his brother, Nick, and I think he got injured. So props for Roberto to sticking with the match with the weight difference and experience. And I love watching him competing. Gordon was just too much for him. Overall experience size. And the main event was Craig Jones and Ronaldo Jr., which Ronaldo, I'm a super I'm a big fan, man, of his gi game. It's really good, very entertaining. But his no-gi game is not at his gi level yet. And Craig Jones has an amazing jiu-jitsu no-gi. And I knew that would be a tough matchup for Ronaldo, especially when he get to the, eventually in, fif in 15 minutes, he at some point he would get to the legs in 15 minutes. So props for them great event and one of the things that maybe i don't know if everyone is aware not everyone follow all the kind of like jujitsu gossips or were not but it happened an altercation unfortunately happened between gordon ryan and under galvão and it got physical it got ugly and this audio here i'm not here to judge who am i <laughs> to judge anyone i've made plenty of bad choices in my life, bad decisions, and like Tony Robbins said, it's in your moments of decision that your destiny is shaped, so if you think about in your life, decisions that you look back and think, man, I'd have done differently, something that you just maybe got hijacked emotionally, whatever happened, and then you just the truth is you did the best you could with the emotional maturity that you had at that moment. And when you make a decision fueled by your ego, you might experience one of the comedians, Dave Chappelle, most famous skit called When Keeping It Real Goes Wrong. You can go to YouTube and look it up. Just type When Keeping It Real Goes Wrong, Dave Chappelle. It will pop up. And actually now it's available on Netflix as well. So it's funny that always there's a moment of a decision and then the narrator of the show goes, he or she could have left or let it go, but decided, the key word, decided to keep it real. And something bad happens. And I have an embarrassing story to share that I've never shared in the podcast before, but it fits the topic that we're talking about when keeping it real goes wrong. And I have plenty situations in my life that I 
this happened with me. There's times that I kept it real. It didn't go wrong. There's times that it went wrong. But anyway, this is this happened 20 years ago, over 20 years ago when I moved to Las Vegas. It was in 1999. And I was working in construction. I knew this guy had a, um, he was a contractor, had some, had a crew with like maybe 15 people or so. It was me and I basically about like, 15 Mexicans or, or something and sometimes they have like one or two different people they would never l really stick around it was very strange and it was like they had a big clique their big group and I wasn't like really part of it and I just kind of like you know what I just I just kept to myself and I just had the feeling that the leader of the group that was kind of like the manager of the, the crew had a problem with me and one day it kind of got a little you know, a light argument per se. And so I left and he called the boss and basically trying to get me in trouble or whatever. So the so I got in trouble. My boss called me and to yell at me and stuff. So I could have talked through my boss and said, hey, let's have a meeting, the three of us, to see exactly what I'm not doing. I could ask the guy, can we talk about it? and see what am I doing wrong. But I decided, my ego and I decided to keep it real. I said, what? He's gonna hear from me. We got a problem, we gotta solve this, screw that. I got my bicycle and, uh, and I rode 15 <laughs> to 20 minutes to get to work this whole time. I'm like thinking about a psyched up, like yeah, today is the day that you're gonna settle this. It's just unfortunate the mind, the emotional material level that I had at that at that moment, and so I got there and basically confront him, and the fight ended up not happening, but my intentions were very clear, and as a result, that I kept it real. I lost my job two days before Christmas while my wife, was, ex wife, was pregnant. <laughs> How about that for when keeping it real goes wrong? So. I don't know much about the bad blood in between them. I know that they've been talking back and forth online. But sounds like Galvão decided, and this is the key word that we've been using, decision. He decided not to shake Gordon's hand. After the match, because he was there with Craig Jones, who coached Craig Jones, and right after he went to shake Andre's, uh, Andre's hand. So Andre decided not to shake the hand and even showing the finger from what I've heard. It's irrelevant, the finger or not. Just the act that, okay, and that's not the right that he has of not shaking hands, and that's okay. You can just go like, you know what, man? We'll have this issue. Let's just keep it here. You stay there. It's okay. So he chose to do that. He add the finger. Then he could have just ended there, but what it sounds like, and from what I see in the video, I, I cannot see the, the, the whole thing, but... It, it shows Gordon walking and Galvon decided to keep it real and said he's going to hear that I have more to say. And the rest is history. What is the moral of the story? Emotional maturity. I guarantee you that you've experienced something in your life, as I mentioned before, that's something that you just completely lost your cool, you just got completely emotionally hijacked. You just you didn't have a chance to reevaluate 
something that or should I do this? You just jumped in and completely reacted to a situation. And then you, after you said like, man, what did I do? So it's tough to judge uh, Gordon and Galvon. It was wrong, of course it was wrong. No one, everyone to see a fight. But it's tough to judge because all of us have done something that we look back and like, wow, I got completely emotionally hijacked. So I'm not going to uh, blame them uh, for that. So I feel that the message that I live with emotional maturity is for us, our goal, I, I see emotional maturity as like a scale from zero to 100, that we're never going to reach 100 unless we become monks or something like that. But our, our goal is to keep raising that level to be able to become more rational instead of emotional. That means responding to situations, not reacting. And that requires a lot of self-awareness to catch yourself, catch your, your negative voice, the dark passion is saying, oh yeah, no, 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 no. We gotta go there, we gotta keep it real. Oh, no, 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 he's gonna have to listen. When the ego gets involved, the ego, dark passenger, whatever you wanna call it, that's a problem. So you need to become more aware to recognize when you have some of those thoughts and you reevaluate to stop like, wait, what are the short or long-term consequences of this action? And then you make a decision. And most of the times when we get emotionally hijacked, we jump this part, we just go, boom, decision. This is going to be, I'm going to keep it real. So to wrap it up, remember Tony Robbins' words, it's in your moments of decision that your destiny is shaped. Now stay with Andrew Gardner's interview right after Jiu-Jitsu Tribe's message. Us. The BJJ Mental Coach Podcast is a proud supporter of the nonprofit organization Jiu-Jitsu Tribe, formerly Live Jiu-Jitsu. Jiu-Jitsu Tribe supports social projects who offer free Jiu-Jitsu classes to unprivileged children and young adults in impoverished communities, inspiring, impacting, and improving their lives, keeping them away from drugs and crime, creating hope, and creating champions on and off the mats. Your donation helps projects to pay for their monthly expenses and facility makeovers. As a supporter, the BJJ Mental Coach donate all the profit of all online courses and merchandise to Jiu-Jitsu Tribe. For more information, please visit www.jujitsutribe.org. Let me introduce you to today's guest, Andrew Gardenier. Andrew is a second-degree black belt in jiu-jitsu from Jiva Santana. Andrew is the co-owner of the Boa Jiu-Jitsu Academy in Surprise, Arizona, with his wife, Leslie, who is also a black belt. Andrew has taught BJJ in Phuket, Thailand at Tiger Muay Thai, where teaching, he was able to compete in BJJ, Muay Thai, and MMA. And Andrew is a multiple-time veteran of the professional grappling promotion, Fight to Win. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So for people I just mentioned, uh, he's from Arizona. Sometimes people are just jumping in and listening to a podcast for the first time. So if people don't know, I am also from Arizona. So how was 2020, man? Yeah, it was an interesting year. It definitely kept me on my toes. Uh, yeah. So we had opened up uh, our new facility uh, in February um, 2020. So we just had expanded. And oh, then uh, a few weeks later, here comes COVID, you know, and 
it was pretty much a daily adjustment. I don't know how it was for you, but it was like, Absolutely. let me, let me try to do this. And then you'd hit a roadblock here. And it was like a constant adjustment, you know, um, we were forced to be movie stars all of a sudden overnight, you know, and yeah. that wasn't really something in my comfort zone. I didn't, I didn't like to teach the zoom classes and the Facebook live classes and not have that live interaction with my students. So it was a, it was a huge learning curve for me, you know, and every time I started figuring something out, a new bombshell would drop <laughs> and be like, okay, let me try to figure out this one, you know? Um, so it was a, it was, a, it was an interesting year. I think there was a lot of growth last year. You know, um, it was it was good that most of my students stuck around. I was very fortunate that a lot of my students helped out financially while we were um, shut down. We were shut down for like completely for probably three months um, mm -hmm. and then minorly on other other uh, timeline, you know, and uh, we'd frozen all our memberships. So we were pretty much surviving and paying our gym rent that had not shut down. It was continuing to go yeah. um, off of donations and. Uh, just savings and it, it was definitely a challenge for us so man but we are at the beginning of 2021 and i feel that it's still not going to be that great but better than 2020 and um i'm excited for 2022 <laughs> you know what i mean because yeah you know i feel that uh, things will get better i think if you're able to really hang with this what's going on right now i i feel that you know maybe in six months europe especially next year that things gonna think finally clear up a lot of people still not comfortable training and depending where people are listening to where they listen from um it depends you know if they even open you know mm -hmm. which we're very fortunate to be open so it's always every day man that you, if you're a business owner your your business open definitely uh say thank you you know uh, because yeah. be grateful and i think just putting on get us to reevaluate a lot of things and don't take for granted certain stuff like that that you know yeah it's just when we're doing business and suddenly like no we're not doing business right for whatever three months so yeah i'd say we're definitely little. fortunate here in arizona that we can continue to do jiu-jitsu and uh keep our doors open even if it is a limited capacity i think uh we definitely have several students that are still out but we have a we have a good group here that uh, is ready to train and you could tell that they like the students needed it in their life you know yeah. Uh, mentally and physically it was like these like they weren't healthy not training jiu-jitsu so yeah it, that's, that's kind of what I noticed. So let's talk about your beginning in martial arts. Did you train anything prior to jiu-jitsu? Um, I started off with uh, Muay Thai, but like I, I played sports growing up. Um, I played uh, junior college basketball, and then I had moved out here after that into Arizona in 2005 and uh, stumbled upon a, a small gym in North Phoenix uh, called Arizona Center Mixed Martial Arts at the time um, mm -hmm. under Mark Z. Mm. and uh i had a friend introduce it to me and it wasn't like we i went into basics class that day it was like hey here's some mma gloves throw these on <laughs> we're gonna scrap and see how it goes you know so i think i left my first day of jiu-jitsu jiu-jitsu <laughs> uh with uh two black eyes with cuts underneath both my eyes Jesus. and uh with a new addiction you know <laughs> <laughs> so uh 
I think that, that that's why we see so much white belt, like the white belt retention goes up is we have the basics classes and we have these things that kind of smooth the entry level transition of, of, of jujitsu, you know? So um, after I get, got started, I, I kind of fell in love with Muay Thai initially. Um, and I was kind of making myself do jujitsu. Um, and then that kind of started tilting where it was like, I got to go to jujitsu and I'm making myself do Muay Thai over time. Um, I didn't know that I'd fall in love with it like I did, but just the thinking part of the sport and uh, the endless, uh, the endless learning kind of got me hooked. Um, so I trained there uh, until I was a purple belt. Um, we had moved in to Metro Phoenix and we're Gracie Baja at the time. And I had heard about a new gym out West. It was called CGMMA. And I went out there and realized I didn't really like where my skill was as a purple belt. And mm -hmm. I hadn't competed as a purple belt. And I chose to go ahead and put the blue back, blue belt back on and uh, put in a little bit more work. Um, so I pretty much did most of my training from blue to brown belt at CGMMA. Um, uh, at brown belt, I had the opportunity to go to Phuket, Thailand and teach at Tiger Muay Thai. Um, and then I uh, got my black belt in 2013, 2013, in December 2013. Right on. And when did you feel the, the interest of teaching, though? So I was actually forced into a teaching role as a blue belt. I mean, times were a little bit different back then where there wasn't a black belt on every corner. So um, the, the morning classes at the Arizona Center of Mixed Martial Arts kind of turned over to me. So I was teaching people as an underqualified blue belt. Mm. and uh was forced to teach on and off throughout um I, I feel like i didn't get comfortable teaching until i was a brown belt um when i had gone up to siege we had rotating black belts from brazil um so we would have a new black belt for about three months on and then we would have a gap where we had to take over and teach while the next black belt was coming out and then as as i got to about brown belt they stopped bringing them out near as often and i was forced into a teaching role even more and then uh, after I got back from Thailand, I pretty much was teaching full time. Okay. Now let's talk about this moment that you demoted yourself, right? That you're, you already had a purple belt. And how was the thought process? And then I want to even talk with how would you handle a student that come in with the same situation so back then so how was the decision did you ask the instructor you would just pop up with the lower belt how was that because this is a this is a uh, interesting topic because a lot of people uh, it could be experienced this right now i've experienced too i try to convince my my teacher you know not not to you know or to put me back in the belt but it didn't work out so uh, mm -hmm. a lot of people can go through the stuff so how was that for you you know, it was kind of a tricky situation. I had just received my purple belt when I uh, had started flirting with going to a different school. And then uh, my, my black belt at the time, he wasn't really training a whole lot of jiu-jitsu. So I didn't feel like uh, he didn't he didn't stay up to up to date on new techniques and and the way the game was evolving. So when I went to this new school, I saw so many blatant holes in my game that I just did not feel comfortable wearing a brand new purple belt. And I was still fresh out the wrapper, so it was shiny. And uh, I just kind of talked to the instructor there and said, hey, you know, I, I just was promoted as Purple Belt. I would like to be promoted under you guys instead, um, since how you're my new home. How do you feel about me going back to Blue Belt? And 
my professor at the time, he didn't really speak English. So I think that he just kind of acknowledged it. It's like, okay, yeah, let's do it. You know? And uh, I think it was one of the best choices I've ever made. I spent about six to six months to a year um, at Blue Belt again, and was able to just fill in all those gaps. I think a lot of times we think, oh, we're ready for that new belt. We want that new belt. But looking back at it, extra time is not going to hurt anyone, you know? Yeah, I, I went through, I, I believe I mentioned at some point in a podcast, but I went through this when I went from, when I was a blue belt, at least I was wearing a blue belt and I was in a school that it was heavily based on self-defense, which I, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just, I wanted more of like the sport jujitsu. So when I went to a place, uh, well, first I just went to an in-house tournament, you know, got murdered. And then I figured out like, oh, okay. You know, I really don't know anything. And when I went to um, another school after first day, I asked the instructor, is it okay? You know, I feel comfortable if I go, go back to white and stuff. Cause it's just, so here's the thing. He saw something maybe I didn't see. He just told me like, now just stick around, you know, cause I was already training for over two years. So I had some idea what was happening, but of course I was not a, like a solid blue, but I had a clue. And then six months later i felt i was a blue belt so it took me like six months to adapt like i said a few holes or learn things that i had no clue they even existed just to become like okay you're a blue belt even a right. beginner blue belt but you're you're a blue belt you know so how you do with your your students or i don't know if scenarios like that has happened before well it has come up actually several times um i think that there's different standards of jiu-jitsu depending on what school yeah. you go to, you know and uh i've had students come over and most of the time i say you know your instructor promoted you to this belt we're going to grow into the belt uh -huh. let's continue to work there has yeah. been some situations where it's like more oh you trained stuff, for yeah. six months okay i could see that you don't see that you're a blue belt yeah. or even uh probably a more common situation is kids um like you went from white belt to yellow black belt maybe because that's the only belt they had in their school that day. Uh -huh. So they decided to promote you and skip all these steps. So now I'm going to have you compete against people that have been training yeah. for five years, six years. And at first we were real reluctant to do it, but then I saw like the, the um, negative effect it had on the kids when they were going out there and they were just getting demolished in competition and they weren't up there with the rest of their peers. So it's easier for me to say, Hey, look, well, these are, this is the belt system we use. It looks like your instructor used a different belt system. Yeah. Let's bring you back to the first belt after white belt, yeah. because that's where you would be, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, and this is still like so delicate because uh, I agree 100% with you, but in tournaments in Arizona have happened that a kid maybe competed as an orange belt. He was very young and I mean, orange belt, that means you got a pretty decent knowledge, man. If you're a kid and you're yeah. nowadays, like if you're orange belt, you really know what you're doing really right. well. So like I said, and then put against another kid and say like, oh, well, and now he's back on yellow. Now someone's showing me a picture of him competing as mm -hmm. orange before. And there's always the parents that are going to chase me down to put a full like, um, kind of like report on a kid, you know, they go. Right. 
these scouting yeah, been, and all this stuff. It's pretty impressive some of the parents' knowledge of all the competitors in like anywhere close to their kids' division. Like, he competed at this, at this division, and that one. I'm like, Jesus yeah. Christ, man, easy. So, but yes, but it is um it is definitely a, a tough situation, you know. Yeah, sure. So now back to um so the opportunity to go to Thailand. So how was teaching there? Do you did you notice like difference as far as teaching or former interests or how they train or about the same? So most people weren't going to Thailand to learn Brazilian jiu-jitsu, you know, so they were going to train at Muay Thai, Muay Thai camps across. And we had mm -hmm. a really good Muay Thai program at a uh, Tiger Muay Thai. So a lot so of I visitors. To, oh yeah. So it was, it was more of a vacation camp. We didn't have got a it. whole lot of regulars, which was cool for me as a new instructor because I got to teach my A game constantly. I didn't have to dive into things that I wasn't so comfortable with because I knew I had two weeks with this student and then he'd be gone and I'd have a new crop of students. Mm -hmm. So I got to teach like my best seminar game constantly, which was comfortable for me as like uh, learning to be a head coach. But then uh, after I got back, it was a whole nother adjustment teaching every area of jujitsu and making sure that my students didn't have holes because I am not just teaching my A game. Um, but being in Thailand was awesome. Like my job was to teach jujitsu at seven o'clock at night. So I got to train Muay Thai in the day. I got to train MMA in the day. And then I got to eat all kinds of amazing Thai food. If I had to go to the grocery store, that was a big day. So it was like just a laid back pace of life. And I, I love teaching there. And I had different black belts. Jake Shields came out. Hoist Gracie came out. Like I was training with different black belts on a regular basis and had to teach while I had Jake Shields in my class. And that was, uh, sorry, my lights just went off. Can you still see me? Yeah, yeah, you're good. Um, so that, that was a, quite the experience is dealing with the nerves of teaching with a high-level competitor coming through to take my yeah, class. For so. sure. And how was the decision to make it back, uh, back to the U.S. and start teaching? How was that? Um, so I was going to come back temporarily at the time i had i had full intentions of going back out um, but my job was filled and they didn't really have an opening i was supposed to go to malaysia working for tiger muay thai malaysia after that and uh, i didn't really like the negotiations as far as my visa went and everything mm -hmm. like that so i ended up just teaching um so i was pretty much running a program at cgmma at the time with uh several with two other brown belts and we were doing a lot of the day in day out and i was also working as kind of the manager of the gym um so it was a good experience because i kind of got to do a test run of how i would run my gym with some like uh with some parameters around it it wasn't like free right rain here you go this is your program it was like this is our program we want you to teach this 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 you know and i got to do a lot of practicing and figuring out what i would like to change in my own program um so i i tell people all the time like until you have your own gym you're not going to be able to really get exactly what you want you know yeah, there's going to be areas that you're going to say hey i really like this aspect but this aspect i would change so i think that's kind of what uh helped lead me to start my own gym is i kind of wanted to have that free reign of this is how i would start fresh this is the curriculum that i would start with which i thought i had pretty uh, nailed down at the time i think it's changed 
I mean, daily since then, but (laughs) at the time I feel like I had a pretty good curriculum and starting system and everything like that on how I wanted to do things. And then it's been a learning curve ever since um, where I try to improve on a daily. So So something that I'm curious to with people is find out how was their mindset, what was going on on their mind when, as soon as you you started the business from that, that transition of like, okay, I'm going to do this to the moment that you sign the papers and then like, oof, you know, it's, it's right. on me now. So how was mentally for you during this? And it's crazy. Um, we started in uh, September in 2014 with the actual process. Uh, 2013, I'm sorry. Getting my dates mixed up. 2013. Um, and uh, so I, I was looking for a place to rent. And I found a place that was willing to do the build out for me. And they told me, okay, great. Sign the paper. It'll be ready for you January 1st. So I started my uh, jujitsu gym out of the garage and was doing garage training for um, what was supposed to be three months. Come January 1st, we hadn't broken ground yet. Um, hmm. So we, the gym didn't actually get going till June 1st. So we were in the garage for an extended period of time. And I had sold my house at the time to be able to start my new gym up. Um, So I used the equity off of the house to um, get the gym rolling and pay for all kinds of stuff that you don't even think about paying for, like a $3,000 sign and this and that. And, And then my savings was getting depleted while I was working in the garage and training people for free because I... I hadn't started charging a membership yet because we were just out of the garage and it was supposed to be a temporary thing. Uh Um, So by the time that my gym started, we had about $200 left in our savings and uh, it was like, okay, we got a big bill coming up. (laughs) You know, unfortunately, I think that a lot of people had driven by our location and we were able to put up a sign and it, it was like, people were waiting for us to open. I believe the surprise, like, it, it was in dire need of jujitsu. So as soon as we opened our doors, kind of like it, it filled up way faster than we anticipated. So we were lucky enough to continue to truck along for a while and then uh, get, get the gym packed after a while. Man, props for you for pretty gutsy move. You know what I mean? To be able to sell the house and then, then go all in and props on that, because I feel that, probably many, many people who are listening right now uh, maybe have had this the thought before. You know, if, and this is just one example, of course, that is nerve-wracking, you know what I mean? Right. Because, like, there's no other way. This has to work, you know? And, and I just feel like when you're necessity, it's a hell of a motivator, you know what I mean? Right. <laughs> so, uh, so that's awesome that you're able to make it and and taking that big risk now what did you say since 2014 that started uh june 2014 is when we opened up yeah so the struggles that you didn't know yet besides covid besides covid what are some of the biggest difficulties that you had running the school maybe things that you didn't expect you know because you taught before but then like i said name your name is on paper what did you say well we opened up with a 1300 uh, square foot facility so 
I think one of the biggest anticipate like things that I didn't anticipate was being packed right away, mm. you know, where it was like, okay, how are we going to add new students? We got 30 kids in our kids program on a little mat and they're jam packed running around and, uh, which is a good problem to have, but at the time it was kind of, kind of stressful not having enough space for everyone. And I, I wasn't familiar with uh, running a gym, so I did not set clear expectations right away for my students. So we'd have 30 kids on the mat and then mom bringing little Joey to class and bring with him about seven other siblings that were running around at the gym at the same time. It got chaotic for a little while. I think that uh, that was one of the areas that I definitely overlooked was like not the actual people that were participating in class, but the people that weren't participating in class. And I think that really gave me a lot of issues for, for several years. Um, uh, like I said, we opened up our new facility this year and we made it a little bit more user-friendly as far as keeping the uh, people that are not participants in class a little further away and behind a wall and everything like that. But at first I had no idea that that'd be one of my biggest issues was trying to contain the people that not that aren't on the mat <laughs> for sure and especially the kids class um a few schools have a i have a mind just having a wall with the glass and then the parents are actually back because it's tough when yeah. it's just a the parents sitting right there you know right like right there on the mat and then you kind of need the process of to educate the parent. Next thing you look, there's someone kneeling inside the mat trying to help doing something like, no, no, right. no, 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 no. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that, that process is, uh, is challenged. How big is the facility right now? Uh, so we just moved to a 3,500 square foot facility. So this is our uh, second expansion. We expanded from 1,300 to 2,400, and then now we're at 3,500 square foot. Nice. Now, what about your growth as a business owner are you into books or podcasts or courses i mean where you try to get some information to bring to your business i'm not even saying like technique jujitsu right i'm right. saying like as far as running the business uh what do you say well fortunately and i was put in a position where i had to learn on the job when it wasn't my gym so I learned a lot of things that I would change and do differently and uh, then got to go see how Tiger Muay Thai was running their gym and learned a lot about that. And then talking to friends and everything before I opened to see if we can come up with a little bit better system. I think then I read a book uh, by Jocko Willich, uh, the so, Extreme Ownership. Yeah. And um, I think that really kind of changed my business because a lot of the stuff like the kids running around and this and this and this, it didn't really fit my vision, you know, and I had to look back and step back at the end of the day and say, okay, this isn't their issue. This is my issue. You know, I'm not setting these, these guidelines. I'm not setting my expectations correctly. I think that's one of the biggest thing is you have a vision on your gym and setting the expectations and setting the, rules in place and, and creating the environment that you want to do to align with your vision. Yeah. I, I think that's the extreme ownership that he talks about. Is that the centralizing command? Is that what he talks about? That's one of them. Uh, is, it, is that the, the term? That I think he that's used? the second book. I'm not positive. Uh, the extreme ownership is, is more just like just claiming everything in your mm -hmm. world. 
So instead of saying, man, this is the issue, understanding that the issue is on you, you know, like I am, I am allowing this. This is my fault. This isn't their fault, (laughs) you know, for sure, for sure. And yeah, I think it was, yeah, I don't know, but one of the books that it talks about, that's why I, it was, it was good to decentralize command is just not having like one person is the, he one does talk in, about that, you know, that kind book, of like yeah. basically delegation, you know, proper delegation right. or, or not, which is definitely an art, you know, uh, to get this down. So what else, as far as uh, any books that any, anything else that has stood out for you during your, during this process? Um, I don't know. Uh, like I try to read, it's actually a credit to you. Um, you, we had that Arizona coaches meeting and you uh-huh. talked about, uh, the personal development that mm-hmm. jujitsu is and yeah. that you need to make sure that you're taking time to read 10 pages a day. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of changed my philosophy and made sure that I was diving into books and, uh, diving into, uh, personal development books and, I don't know if one sticks out more than the other, but I think mm-hmm. that it's always just a constant reminder and something to work on. If you're reading at that time, you could take the information that you're reading and reflect it in your own life and figure out how you can do things a little bit better and what areas you can focus with on dealing with people. Um, I'm reading a book right now by, uh, I think it's Andrew Carnegie, um, how to win friends, influence people. Uh-huh. And it just talks a lot about like relationships and, uh, I believe owning a gym is about relationships. You know, I feel like uh, I've been in places in the past where it's like, we don't, uh, we don't learn the white belts names until they're a blue belt because they might quit anyways, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And uh, it's such an intimidating thing when you step into a gym the first time, you know, everyone knows what they're doing. You don't know what you're doing. I don't know how to do this hip escape. Yeah, of course you don't know how to do the hip escape, but if they don't have that personal relationship with somebody, I think it's too easy for them to quit Mm-hmm. And one of the things you, we just mentioned about jujitsu as a personal development tool, mm-hmm. and I feel that the tournament, it's a, it's also a, a form of a tool mm-hmm. of personal development, but that extension of jujitsu to have the opportunity to just deal with that under pressure situation. So you, you guys have a lot of kids that compete too. So what do you talk, what do you share with the parents as far as like, not to convince, but persuade them, but just explain about, about kids competing and the benefits of it, you know? So, right. and how, how that, cause I, I want to learn more about it too. So I'm asking, so what do you try to sell them in a way, air quotation is the sell and the idea of them competing? Yeah. So I think that the main thing that I like to, teach their like try to tell the parents is let's not get too carried away with the wins and losses of this tournament um your kid's going to learn a lot about themselves going up into the tournament and this is an extremely like stressful situation for them yeah. uh, it's it's crazy watching kids actually deal with the stress of competing and if you have a parent that's on there and making the arizona state championship the their world right there it's like it's going to add 10 times more stress for the kid. So I've found like personally competing, sometimes I don't compete near as well as I'd like to compete. But the growth that I experience going into the tournament is way more important than the actual competition. 
So I try to look at it as a tool to improve your jujitsu and improve your life. Um, I try not to tell the uh, uh, like students, like, let's not make the tournament your goal. Let's make jujitsu your goal. Mm -hmm. And a tournament is a tool to get to your goal of the best possible jiu-jitsu player you can be. So we're going to learn a lot about where we're at. And it's a great like uh, barometer for where you're, I mean, tournaments don't lie, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So. Um, yeah. The thing with the, uh, um, definitely there's a group of parents that are a little more challenging, let's say the least, uh, especially sometimes when, they're competing and they try to over coach you. Right. You know what I mean? So how you handle that? What, how's the conversation like? Because some it's always comes from a good intentions, right? Of course, there are right. good intentions. I mean, you can say to go and stuff, but it started like giving more technical advice on what he should do. So getting a little tricky. You know, so how you guys handle that? Like in a, and got to be like in the nicest way possible. You know what I mean? Right. I think that uh, one thing that we use to help train our parents and train our students at the same time is we do in-house tournaments about monthly. Mm -hmm. So we tell the students, like uh, we tell the parents, hey, this is for your student to grow. This is for your child to grow. Um, we're going to have the kids coach so that they're growing as a coach as well. So we ask you to be quiet and just kind of watch your kid so and then celebrate their them, yeah. successes afterwards. Um, so it kind of is planting that seed that, hey, you don't need to be coaching while it's time to compete. Um, I know that you were talking about doing a black belt area in mm -hmm. your tournaments when you're coming up. But when everyone's in the same little mob of people, it's really hard to pick out the information that your coach is giving you when somebody's yelling, get him, get him. Yeah. So <laughs> it's a. It's definitely a challenge that we try to at least mention before every student, every tournament, like, hey, please let us do the coaching. And if you're yelling, your kid not, might not be able to hear what we're saying to help them technically improve in the tournament. And regarding to the kids program, if you have, because sometimes I ask, uh, what advice would you give to the younger Andrew and then the different moments, but the moment that you, you're teaching kids. So what advice you would give to your younger self when you start teaching that would be like you probably would have done differently i think uh same thing as i talked about earlier is having those uh clear um guidelines and expectations that go along with your vision so not letting people overstep their boundary because you need little johnny's money coming in like at the beginning you know say hey if, if you can't drop little johnny off or not bring the extra siblings is, this might not be the spot for you, you know? Um, so I think just setting the clear expectations going forward. Um, luckily, I have a lot of help with the kids program. Um, you were talking about the delegating and everything like that. My wife, Leslie, has almost taken over our kids program where I get to just come in and kind of help out on the mat um, and focus more on the adult program, but be able to just be an extra set of eyes and a jujitsu uh, mentor a little bit more on the mat where I'm not doing the everyday coaching. Yeah. which is kind of nice yeah what about advice that you give to the younger andrew as far as running your business right from the gecko um i just say believe in believe in what you uh what your vision is um i believe that uh 
for me, jiu-jitsu is not about the tournaments. Jiu-jitsu is about jiu-jitsu. It's way bigger than whether you win or learn tournaments. I've seen a lot more people in our six years change their life and have that to say rather than I won this tournament or that tournament. So believe in that environment and continue to um, to water the, the, that environment and make sure that it's growing and continuing to get better every day. Awesome. And what do you have now? We're recording this basically uh, end of February, 2021. So what do you guys have? What are you guys currently excited about? What's going on with the school? I know that now uh, we're just talking a little bit in the beginning with, um, you know, things trying to slowly pick up here in Arizona. So what are you guys excited about? What's going on? I, I just love being at my school. I was, I was talking to my wife about it last night, like been starting to get a little bit busier in our classes again. And, uh, taking away some of the small group training that we were doing during quarantine and opening up our classes a little bit more. Um, and it's, it's just enjoyable to be here. Um, I, I love to be at the gym. I love my students. Uh, I'm really excited for this year. Um, recently we had uh, Leslie's son, Tyson, who's actually one of your black belts. Mm -hmm. He came over and he moved out to the Valley. So he's been uh, adding another piece to the school as well. And uh, compliments to you because he's a heck of a teacher as well. So I've been able to, kind of learn and uh, digest techniques with him and see uh, see a better way of doing things and, and, and with that. And, you know, I have several other black belts here as well that are helping me out. And our program just seems to be growing and growing. And it looks like our adult program is like starting to like surpass our kids program. We were kind of known as that having a good kids program in the beginning and uh, working towards getting a better adult program and our adult programs kind of arrived. So I'm excited for more tournaments to come so we can kind of show us some of the stuff that we've been working on and the improvements that we have made as a team. Yeah. That's one of the things here, the tournaments in, in Arizona, uh, some of you know, some don't, but I've been promoting tournaments in Arizona for 20 years. And right now we're looking to get back into the scene uh, as responsibly as possible um, but actually uh, for especially for people from Arizona who is listening my issue right now it's with venues actually having a difficulty with uh, renting because some of the colleges are completely you know not renting to anyone and there are some of some other facilities that some might be too tight some are they don't want to work with more than two organizations for whatever reason. So very strange. So anyway, so now I'm kind of like uh, just looking for and just trusting that the right moment will happen. So I'm not uh, stressing about it. I wanted to do something May, June, but it really depends if, if the, the proper setup, you know, present itself and then hopefully can start promoting again and get people to compete because it, it is um we're talking about being a tool and man it's it's a great way it's the growth i think everyone should compete at least once you know just have an idea how that is how you're gonna handle your nerves when you when you're competing and if you think about your journey not a, of course everyone got different ones but even you thinking about all the journey, all everything that has have done as a competitor, 
Now imagine you have scratch all that out. It was just all the training, which is good. You learn how to fend yourself. It's a great tool. Absolutely. But the emotional growth is not even close. Right. I mean, how your experience should be like, okay, all these years with competition evolved and without is just a, uh, it's just a different level of growth. Growth is ne- inevitable, of course, but when you add the process of the competition and dealing with the frustration of not getting the results that you want and coming back in for more and so many lessons on resilience, you cannot even compare. You know, so that's what I try to present to people. You don't have to compete to benefit from the all from everything that jiu-jitsu has to offer you. However, if you want to amplify this, the power of this tool, the tor- tournaments are a great way to do so, of like dealing with your emotions. So this is one of the, that's basically me, like the main inspiration that I give to people who are like, hey, you want to compete? Man, do it and uh, do it use it as a tool. I wish uh, I could say that I, I could have conversations like that in my 20s, but no, impossible. I wouldn't even cross my mind. It's, you know, my especially early 20s, you just think, win, gold medal. You know what I mean? That's all you, you think about. And just when you start getting older, you see like, wow, this, this picture is so much bigger than what I imagine. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. I, I love to watch how jiu-jitsu works in people's lives, you know. It, it would change people's lives for sure. And the tournament is going to give them something that I foreign to anything that they've had to do before. So the nerves and the anxiety and the preparation and the growth, it's just unmatched. Absolutely. Andrew, thank you so much for your time, man. Appreciate it. Congratulations on your, your work. How we see your – it's cool that you're talking about your – your adults program growing because your your kids uh, team always did really really well at the tournament always with a big group so obviously you guys doing a great job out there so congratulations man thank you and thank you for having me look forward to getting uh, the arizona brazilian jiu-jitsu league going too it'll be fun yes sir thank you everyone i'll see y'all later We're glad you were able to join us for this episode of the BJJ Mental Coach Podcast. But the lesson doesn't end here. Watch the videos and download the audio of the 10 mental mistakes BJJ competitors make and how to avoid them for free when you subscribe to the BJJMentalCoach.com. Don't miss the chance to find out what might be holding you back from being your best self on and off the mat. That's the BJJMentalCoach.com.